0: Hello. You're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Shumon dai shiketsu so ni ka butsu. Mon Iwaku, Kanshiketsu. Shumon shu Entangling Vines, Case 20. Ummon's Dry Piece of Shit. A monk asked Ummon Bunen, What is Buddha? Ummon answered, A dry piece of Shit. Middle day, the third day of our harvest session. Middle day is sliding from one half of the session into the other half, just in the same way that the noodles slid down our throat at lunch. It's a tradition to have noodles on the middle day of a session. And it's also a tradition to eat them as noisily as possible. It was kind of disappointing today. <laughs> Way too refined. <laughs> real, real suction. <laughs> the. This is the aspect of the hungry ghost that we we carry in ourselves and that we are allowed to play out on middle day, only on middle day, at lunch. Here we have the traditional way of having a soba. I think it is soba. Uh, Soba and uh, some dashi, which is the liquid that we had in the second bowl, and something else, some vegetables. It's very traditional in the Japanese way to have it that way. At Mount Baldy, the middle day, also had a noodle meal at lunch. But it was spaghetti and tomato sauce. And as one of the condiments, cheese, was served that was grated from a very large block of industrial-type cheddar cheese. It looked like cheese. (laughs) You never know. But it had the same function. Everybody was looking forward to that meal. And if you didn't like the noodles, you certainly liked the tomato sauce. And Tenzo's went to different lengths of making that tomato sauce their signature dish. We all want to make an impact, but uh, in this practice, we have to be looking carefully what kind of impacts we make. Bringing expectations, for example. We fall into the expectations like a blind person would walk into a hole in front of them. That's what it feels like once you start uh, crawling out of the hole. But damn, I didn't see that thing coming. But it's right there in front of you. And we really have all different kinds of motivations that we then use as an explanation for having stepped <laughs> into that hole. It might be as little as that the color of the dashi that we are serving is not the color that we usually expect oh, there must be something wrong here. There's nothing wrong with that thought. But I know what's wrong. (laughs) That's a dangerous thought. So let me fix it. (laughs) And sometimes we know fixing something creates more things to be fixed later. It's a completely human expected thing that this practice unearths and allows us to see very clearly. As a Zen monk, traditionally we are being educated in a way that at times it's actually not soup that is served. And relating to the case that we have today, it is shit soup. That's what this practice at times does. You're hungry, and here comes something warm. It's steaming in the pot. And with with great joy, you pick up your bowl, and you put the ladle in. And then comes the moment of realizing, damn it. This is shit soup. (laughs) What now? What do you do as a Zen monk? You eat it. That's right. Buddha. (laughs) But that's not where it stops. Don't forget, there is a second serving. And as a Zen monk, we are obliged to take seconds. Well, of course, don't take it literally. It's just the things that we get served up in this practice. Monks or not, at times, might appear as, this is really the last thing that I want to deal with right now. However, the setup of a session and of this practice is in a way that we have the supports we need to be able to actually say, no, 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 I am going to look at this. In the same way that we will eat that type of soup, that willingness of wanting and having the determination with the support of all these wonderful bodhisattvas around us here, to actually step into that, what we would feel unsafe doing if we were by ourselves. I mentioned that to somebody in in Doksan, and I have said it many times before. I used to be quite critical of the armed forces. But I started to see people who serve in the armed forces as people working on a koan. Because we all know in this world we live in, there is a need for something like that. Because at times, even in Buddhism, you have to be the Buddhist warrior who goes and rectifies something that is so far out of whack that it needs some strong statement, some strong interaction. So this ambiguity of of serving in the military must be quite something for people, because these are human beings who have to go out, and they go not out for the pay. That much we know for some kind of dedication to a cause. In this case, maybe the cause of freedom. So I started to think about what what would we compare ourselves to as Zen practitioners. I welcome you to the spiritual Marine Corps. Not not only that this might feel like boot camp here, but also by the way of what we are training ourselves for. When you go through the Marine boot camp, you're taught something very important. While every sane person who's not in the military, when you hear gunfire, what do you do? You run away. You go the opposite direction as safely and as quickly as you can. If you're in the Marine Corps, you are trained. When you hear gunfire, what do you do? You run towards it. That is what you're being trained. In the Zen practice, if you encounter something in your path during Sashin that says, don't go here, don't go here. That is the direction we will be heading in. And we can take the strength of our our fellow bodhisattvas with us to be able to step into these areas that we much rather would not step into. But of course, it's not always fight. Fight. Or not always going into uncomfortable places. At times there is also, when was that, bliss? Remember that? Isn't that one of the big advertisements? Come here and find your bliss? Find your bliss? No? <laughs> <laughs> no? But... You know, the pain is not advertised either. <laughs> but it is probably the only thing that we can more or less guarantee. <laughs> That's why I talked a little bit about and Shaku and how at this time when he lived, there was this idea that Buddhism has to be brought to people. They are ready for it now in those lesser developed countries. Sometimes you will be asked about your practice. And somebody will ask you, oh, do you think I should do that? What, what would you answer to that? Think about it. What would you answer to somebody asking, should I do that? I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> That's the best answer. I can't recommend it. That's what I always say. I cannot recommend this practice to you because, of course, you should try, but you cannot do it on recommendation. We all are sitting here because there is something that not only has brought us here, but that, against all odds, is keeping us here. Isn't that how you feel many times? How by the skin of your teeth you're still here. But that is really important to know that all of that is just through your own determination, your effort, and your bodhicitta, your intention to awaken, to continue with your life. And at this time, it might be being here. All right, this is the prologue, and we have already touched on shit, so the topic is well introduced. (sighs) Who are we meeting today in this koan? Yeah, let's talk about that very quickly. Now, some of you might be upset because I said case 20, and those who have very good memory will think, wow. the last tash he gave in the previous session was case twenty. How could this be case twenty again? Mm. The Shumon Katoshu, this collection of Koans, comes in different translations. And the first translation that I used up to this point was published in Kyoto by the Zen Bunka Kyokai by the Zen Culture Association. And it was translated by Thomas Kirshner. I got that book in the mail as a sample. Well, I was still at the Cambridge Buddhist Association, so that was before 2011. I think it was printed somewhere, end of or middle 2005, 6, 7, in that area of time. But in the meanwhile... New versions have come out, wonderful new versions, also by Thomas Kirchner, who then took another Japanese publication by a Japanese roshi by the name of Domai Jimyo, Sokan Roshi, who in Japanese went through the whole Shumon Katoshu and went back to the sources. And part of it is that these koans are really not numbered in the Japanese version in the original. They just have a name. Every case has a name. This one is Umon Shketsu. Umon's piece of shit. So they in now, in, in the newer version, corns that are the same as the one before, they are now under the same number. So last session, I talked about 19-1 and 19-2, not 19 and 20. So I get to talk about 20 again today. We meet Umon Bunen Umon probably does not need a lot of introduction. However, being such an eminent master is never a bad idea to refresh our memory. And part of giving a Teisho is to pay And to honor those Zen ancestors, to requite the beneficence as we recited it in the translation of Kosen Taito, Ho On Sudo. So, Ummon Bunen, he was born around 862 or 864 of the Common Era. It's not clear exactly which year because it was not recorded. What we know for sure is that he died in the year 949. So this is the late Tang dynasty. In the lineage chart, Umon Bunen is shown as a Dharma heir of Seppo Gisuan. He was born in a town called Jiaxing, which is a little bit southwest of Shanghai. The family name was Zhang. We know when he died by the fact that, that the monastery that he founded and that he led later, there are two uh, memorial plates that talk about his life and that state the year he died and how old he was. You know, in the Asian way of counting the years, when you are born, you're one year old. When you have you celebrate your birthday, then you're two, even though you have just lived for one year. So the age is always one year more than you are actually are. So taking that into consideration from 949, we can subtract it and say it's 862, 863, 864 in that area. Do you remember what the really root Chinese teaching at that time was from a person that lived at the same time that the Buddha lived, that informed the development of the, of the Chinese culture tremendously? What kind of teaching was that? Confucius. Yeah, Confucianism. Confucius. He lived at the same time as, as uh, Shakyamuni Buddha or the historical Buddha. Siddhartha Gautama. So that is the context in which Buddhism came, you know. Do you know anything about Confucianism? A little bit, probably. It has a lot of teachings of how to behave, filial piety, and morality, and all of that, which allowed the Chinese culture to f- flourish tremendously in these thousand years before Buddhism was introduced to China. And here comes Buddhism. The Chinese way of doing things is to welcome everything that comes in and if it is of use to include it in the culture. So for, for a Chinese person I hear that it's not uncommon to have several religions. One of them will work, hopefully. There's no conflict. So there's not this really strict dogma. But at the same time, what is proper is proper from the Confucian background. So that's why the first types of Buddhism that were really welcomed and found a lot of uh, people following had to do with the Vinaya, with the rules. So becoming a monk and following those monastic rules, they were in the thousands by then, very strict rules. Zen was a little different when it developed there in China. Like one of the rules we know about that goes back to the time of the Buddha in subcontinental India, is that you are not allowed to eat in the evening as a monk. You are not. And apparently in India it was a rule that came out of the overall knowledge that if you eat at night, it is so hot, you probably won't sleep well and you get sick over time. There was some practicality in it. But it came to China, where the climate is completely different. How would you enjoy Sishin with two meals? You only get two meals. You just don't realize that. What we have in the evening, the food that we partake is no not a meal. And you, you notice that there's no chanting. There's no chanting. There's no offering of the Saba, of the offering to the hungry ghost, because it is not a meal. It is medicine. So that happened in China, because this was much, the, in northern China, the climate is tremendously different. So the monks at first tried to heat up flat stones and to put them on their stomach to counteract those cravings of hunger and at times the cramps. But being pragmatic, the rule is still the same. But it's called now medicine stone. It's you eat. Because otherwise you would not survive. But you call it medicine stone, yaksiki. Very practical. That is a transformation of some of those Vinaya rules that happened in China. Umon, when he was young, he he started to study with a commandment master. That's how we translate that. In the town he was born, he studied with that person for several years until the age of 20, where he got ordained. He was very bright. Supposedly, he could remember a sutra from hearing it once. Even though he could retain the sutras and he studied all the Vinaya, it was not satisfying to him. A lot of the early Zen ancestors were dissatisfied or not, sa- not dissatisfied, were not satisfied, which is quite different. were not satisfied with reading about the teachings of the Buddha. So they set out to hear from those newly appearing teachers of the Zen tradition. The records from that time are very simple. And there's a whole book by someone who worked at the Institute for Research, the IRIZ, International Research Institute for Zen in Kyoto, who was from Switzerland by the name of Urs App. And he wrote a book about this. It's a very, very interesting thing to read. And one of the things that you can learn if you, if you want to look at it is that the very early sources of all these masters of the Tang dynasty are very simple. There is not much recorded about them. There is the story of how they lived, where they studied, who transmitted the Dharma, and things like that. But then when you go later and later... Stories pick up details as they age. A very simple story that states, well, Umon went to, to try to be accepted in, by Bokushu, a teacher who was almost 100 years old at the time already. He was rejected twice, but then the third time, Bokushu let him in. That's probably how it started out, that whole story about how Umon awakened. So I will tell you one of the embellished stories, and everybody tells them different, which is nice, too. But what happened with Umon is he wanted, he heard about Bokushu. Bokushu was known, and he had been in a in monastery with Rinzai, where he was actually the head monk, but he had to leave the monastery to help his mother. So he moved back to his hometown. He basically left his occupation as a monk. And he helped his elderly mother by making sandals. So he was a sandal maker then. Of course, at some point, his mother passed away. And he became somewhat of a hermit, living I think it was still near the town where his mother had lived. And people would come and visit him. There are different ways of saying And Some people say he had some kind of a sliding door that would let people into his room. Others say there was a big gate at his property where he would let people in. But you can think whichever you want, but that's where Uman showed up. And he wanted to get in. And Bokush opened. Before Uman could say anything, he found himself grabbed. Speak, speak. (laughs) Thrown out the door. And it was shut again. Dumbfounded. Uman went back and did a little more Zazen probably. I'm not going to give up. I'll go back. I'll go back. This time I will be better prepared. (laughs) He goes, he he knocks, and the gate, the door opens. The same thing happens. Speak, speak. Couldn't say anything thrown out. The third time, probably Umon had a good plan. I'm going to say something really profound. When he says, speak, speak, I will just wow him. Don't come to Doksan like that. It doesn't work. So he comes, he knocks on the door. The door opens. He's being grabbed. Speak, speak. He starts probably to say something still. Bokushu throws him out, but Umun thinks, I'm not going to go away that easily. I'm going to stick my leg right in there, in between the door and where it shuts. But Bokushu (laughs) just closed the door. And the story is that his leg was broken. At that moment, crying out in pain, he awakened. And Bokushu led him in. Come in now. I'm sure he was not rendering first aid, but he heard for the first time Umon speak in an authentic way. He stayed a couple of years with Bokushu, but he was so old that he sent him away to to study with Seppo Gison, whose uh, Dharma successor he became. This is the famous story about Umon awakening. The name, actually, of Umon comes from the monastery that he later presided over. Umon. What does it mean? Un, Kumo, the cloud, and Mon, Kado, the gate, cloud gate. It was quite an interesting mountain. It's still there nowadays. You can go if you want to travel to China and you can visit Umon's monastery. He founded a school which, of course, was called after him, the Umon School, one of the five schools of Zen at that time. And that school flourished in the early Song dynasty, up to the 13th century, actually, because it developed into a direction where there was a very poetic flavor to it. And as you know, or might know, that creating poetry following specific rhyme schemes and following specific rules was part of the education in the Confucian system for officials. And we all, we still partake in that a little bit in our koan practice. And we'll see how. So with that poetic streak in it, in the rows of succession of successive generations of Umon, we find the first people who started to comment on old cases, eventually eventually culminating in the compilation and the writing of the Blue Cliff Record. So there is Seicho Juken, who collected those old 100 cases, and it's what's called, I think, uh, odes, O-D-E, odes, to 100 old master's cases. And later his uh, disciple, Engu Kokugon, commented on the comments. That's how the Blue Cliff Record came into existence. So when Uman was 85 or 86, he was supported by the ruler of that southern Han empire. And he composed a letter to his patron, a farewell letter. He gave a final lecture to his monks. He ascended the high seat. And since he knew it was his last lecture, he forced himself into the full lotus posture with his broken leg, delivered his lecture, and finished with the following statement. Coming and going is continuous. I must be on my way. Does anyone remember something similar like that? of A much later master who, who did the same thing Umon did, who had something with his leg and then broke it and gave a talk? And, hmm? Yeah, Daito Kokushi. What we chanted today in English is the last admonition of that Daito Kokushi, who also had his leg injured when he lived with the beggars under the Gojo Bridge. And sometimes they fought over food. So he got injured. But in his last talk, he yanked that leg into the position. that's oh, It hurts just thinking about it, right? We don't really need to do that, just thinking about it. And then he gave this last admonition. So it's, a, it's, it's just an expression of the dedication, of doing whatever it takes, whatever it took at that time. So this Umon Bunen, he was really the first one to comment on other master's sayings, although he did not like his words to be written down. Today, nowadays, it's even worse, you know? Words are not written down. They are recorded and then made available to those who want to waste time listening to them. You don't have a choice. You're a captive audience. But Uman did not want his words to be written down. Because as we know also from the Rinzai Roku, these old masters, they did not want people to use the words of others. Rinzai says something in the Rinzai Roku about people writing it down and then folding that book into three layers of cloth and hiding it so nobody else will see it. And only because they don't have a mouth of their own. Uman said it in a more colorful way, and it's one of my favorite Umon quotes. He said to his monks, he said, you must neither fall for the tricks of others nor simply accept their direct directives. The instant you see an old monk open his mouth, you tend to stuff those big rocks right into yours. And when you cluster in small groups to discuss his words, you are just like those little green flies on a piece of shit that struggle back to back to gobble it up. What a shame. Secondhand will not do second word will not do. That's what he is expressing here. Yet on the other hand, there are some flies who live from eating shit. And that's one type of existence. Even to beasts and birds. So this is Uman. This koan is a typical Umon koan. His answers sometimes were so short that they only contain a single character. This is a more, how shall we say, luxurious koan because it has three characters as the answer. But Umon's answers are always very, very short. Later Zen masters in the history, refer to them sometimes as impenetrable. You can't get through, like a solid metal hammerhead with no hole. How can you swing that hammer without putting something onto it to hold it? Great intensity in many of Uman's talks, shouting, beating, spitting. And no evasion and no hesitation at all. That's what he probably learned from bokshu, slamming the gate. Umon, if we want to say it in a very pointed way, Umon is guts, not brain. He even went so far as to play skits for his students. He said to them, look, look, I got killed. That's what Umon did. Do you understand? Everything very, very direct, very, very direct. No... Explanation. Nothing around it. Just very steep. A very, he, I'm half naked. <laughs> he wanted to express it that he is like the mountain on which he erected his monastery. The steep cloud gate. First of all, you can't really see where you're going because when you're in the clouds... There is very little to see. And he wrote a poem about it, about himself. How steep is Umon's mountain. How low the white clouds hang. The mountain stream rushes so swiftly that fish cannot venture to stay. One's coming is well understood from the moment one steps in the door. Why should I speak of the dust on the track that is worn by the wheel? This corn, like all Um Uman corns, are very steep. The mountain stream rushes so swiftly that fish cannot venture to stay. Not even fish. What moves so fast that nothing can stay? What is that an expression for? Everything is impermanent. Mujo. Anicca, impermanent. Impermanence usually gets a very negative connotation. For some reason, it reminds me the word impermanence, or about it's like an expiration date. Everything will expire. That is the view that we have from the point of view of a an ego of a self that doesn't want to expire. I'm caught now, that doesn't want to expire. But it's really important to see that even impermanence is not just one dimension. Impermanence is what allows things to change. You could It just depends what you focus on. If you focus on the flower blooming and being beautiful from the point of view of a human being, then impermanence for you means, oh, it will wilt. But from the point of the universe, it just means, yes, it will wilt. But then it will go in the compost. It will dissolve as what we... Called a flower before and become what something else will become in the future. This is the teaching of impermanence, which is similar or an equivalent to the teaching of emptiness. We always, or there is this very broad misconception of what emptiness means. Shunyata, ku. It's not voidness. It's not the saying that, well, there is yet another substance that we call emptiness that makes everything up. So it's not something absolute. Shunyata as a teaching, is a teaching that says that mm, there is no constant selfhood. Nothing has an inherent selfhood or an inherent self, even if we human beings tend to believe that we have a self that is what it is and that we hang on to. Shvabhava is the term in the original Buddhist language. There is no shvabhava. That's called shunyata. Emptiness of any selfhood. The example that is often given is the example of a table. We look at something, we call it a table. Or a stand, like the stand where we find the incense burner. That is a completely human-centered view because we just think about the convenience of this composite thing that we make into an object for our own purposes. Table is an abstract function that we create out of a reality that is beyond that. We could call it an event This stand is an event because the wood is probably from different trees. Somebody carved it, but the trees, they grew somewhere. They took the carbon out of the air with the sunlight, converting the CO2, keeping the carbon and emitting oxygen. And currently, these elements are in this kind of event that a human being would call a table. But there is no tableness. Tableness is just a concept that we have. And all of that we read every day in the Diamond Sutra. So pay careful attention. A table is not a table. It is just called a table. That means look at your mind and see where the layer of abstraction and of concepts takes over our relationship with that, what really is in front of our eyes. There is even no need to call it a table. It will not remain a table. Even this solid stand that is very heavy, it will deteriorate. It will rot. Impermanence in action. And then when one of the legs breaks off, our human mind will call it broken. (laughs) But really what is broken is our concept of usefulness of complying with our expectation of how the world should be, what the color of the dashi ought to be, what the table ought to be. So umman completely leaves that conceptual thinking behind. That's why I said guts, not brain. There are so many koans that begin with the sentence a monk asked so and so. And it's always important to look at that monk, that person. For all we know, it might have been a woman. A monk asked Uman. There are different ways we can imagine that this monk appeared in various states. First of all, the monk could be asking the questions because he just arrived. There are koans that says, oh, master, I just arrived here. Please give me instruction." The monk could be some monk or some person, and she already had some insight, some awakening. That's a very different way of asking questions. Sometimes asking questions can be taken as a manifestation, as an expression of one's understanding. Or it could be also that. This monk was just not a plain monk anymore, but somebody who came to challenge Uman for a Dharma battle. Hmm, what is (laughs) Buddha? Dharma battle. Or it could even be between very intimately between a teacher and a very close disciple who already see eye to eye, whose eyebrows entangle with each other and with all the eyebrows of the preceding ancestors. There are many ways to ask this question. And one thing that we learned about Umon, and that is... Known is that he had three favorite phrases to express the way he teaches. So the first phrase is Kangai Kinkon, box and lid, heaven and earth, perfect harmony. The second one is called zuiha chikuro. Following the waves and adapting to the currents. Waves and tide, ebb and flow. And the last one is saidan shudo. To cut through all streams. It doesn't say what streams. It's interesting when they're just four characters. Cut through many streams, it says. And translations get it in very very different ways. Cutting through streams of delusion. Cutting through streams of evil. Cutting through streams of passion. It just says cutting through many streams. (coughs) So now let's go back to those questioners. If the questioner is a newbie, I have a question. What is Buddha? Then the answer of those three principles that Uman adhered to would be the last one, cutting through all streams of delusion, of thinking, of stories. What is Buddha? It's like smashing... Any idea, oh, Buddha pervades the universe. And I can imagine it. Buddha is pure. And then you have somebody say, it's a dry piece of shit. Cutting through any expectation. In the beginning, when Zen came to America, if you listen to Robert Aitken, he tells a little bit about how giddy they were when the Japanese masters came and started to talk about these things and using the word shit. It is still banned from television, isn't it? There are lots of bleeps here. But in in the Zen tradition, it's used quite a lot. Shit and piss and all that. Very earthy. Very earthy. (laughs) My ordination teacher, Joshua Roshi, would call people who teach Zen who have no idea or no deep understanding, he would call them, they are like blind people who pee all over the place and are not even aware where they are. And to make it even worse, he said, sometimes it's like the blind people peeing in the dark. And the students come and they stand there and it gets on their feet and they think, ah, that's nice. However, when it's seen as an answer, the dry piece of shit, which often is also translated as shit wiping stick, there's a lot of research going on. And a good friend of mine, who I know from high school, who turned out to be an expert in Chinese medieval Zen language, he would probably know exactly what it means. But it used to be translated as shit wiping stick. But also now Domae Jimyo Sokan she says, well, sometimes excrements were dried in elongated kind of stacks of dried shit that then could be used for fertilization. It might not be human shit, you know. Cow shit will do fine. But it's easier than to dry it and then you can use it. Most of India uses cow dung to make the best tasting Japati in the world. So it could be that. The elongated form led to the thinking it is a stick. And then come the descriptions. Yeah, it's a spatula that you use to in a specific way. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? <laughs> On the other hand, if you read Dogen's instructions to his monks, those instructions, for example, they they contain very specific ways how you should wipe yourself. And at that time, it's probably that most of the people who came into the monastery had never heard about basic hygiene. Again, very, very down-to-earth is probably the best word, very practical. So breaking that image of a perfect Buddha, it's a piece of shit. Now... However, if we then continue to think, oh, maybe the meaning is even a piece of shit is Buddha. (laughs) That is still on that level of brain. That is not what Uman was after. I know that everything is Buddha, so even a piece of shit. Thank you. No, it's meant to break that, break all of that thinking. And let's not be mistaken, the breaking of that, the cutting through the stream, is not cutting through one delusion or one abstraction or one concept, but through the function that constantly creates these abstractions and concepts. So the individual thing we cut through is not so important. That's why we always talk about cutting the root of it. Now there's a caution. Of course, once we have cut through, it will come back, because we need abstraction and concepts in our daily lives. So we don't end up saying the wrong thing. So that we don't end up doing the wrong thing. That we are able to live in society as an ethical person. For that, concepts are necessary. The universe doesn't give <laughs> a shit about what happens to us humans. We are just so self-centered that we always think about ourselves. The universe just works without will and desire. Expansion happens. Contraction happens. Just like your breath and you can't do anything against it. It just works without will and desire. In itself, that sounds terrible if you think, I want to have will. I want to be in control of this. Sorry. Doesn't work, just works by itself. But as you, and as I can tell you from my way through the practice and doing this for a few weeks now, uh, it is, you start to see the wonderful comfort that lies within the fact that the universe works without will and desire. That's the first time we can say if there is something that the I am self experiences as a hardship. Oh, why is this happening to me? Realizing, no, it's not happening to me. The universe is not after me. It's just happening. The same thing. If something great happens to us, is it because we are special? We all want to be special as long as we listen to that I am self. No, it's happening. It's a wonderful thing that is happening. But it's not because we are special. It's just happening. I find that very comforting. No concepts involved. So the second person coming has some understanding and asks the question, what is Buddha as an expression of that state? In our practice, we are always open. We ought to be always open to that what unfolds in front of us right here and now. I like to put it that we, in a way that at times I started to think about it, it is the dot under the question mark that is in every koan, there's some kind of question or there's some kind of question we have and all of them end with a question mark. And there's this this point under this. This complete openness to having the question resolved by being with what unfolds. So this second student does that. Now, in that context, when we think back to the three Uman's favorite phrases, the box and lid, following the waves and cutting through, what would you think is the most applicable here? I think it is number two following the waves and adapting to the currents. Uman's answer here, meeting in its directness, an open mind, an open heart, an awakened inquiry, is meeting the question like the boat meets, the movement, of this cosmic ocean of life, of expansion, of contraction. And I think there's a quote by Leonard Cohen that says something like, you've got to love the ocean, or you'll be seasick every day. (laughs) so that following the waves and adapting to the currents waves and tide, ebb and flow we all study that in our breath we all see it happening here in the schedule what we do at times when we come together to chant we have this expansive manifestation of ourselves as loud as possible Kanon hears us Kannon hears our voices, which we lend to those who have no voice. And then we go into absolute silence within Zazen, following the ebb and tide of what is being presented to us by the Dharma activity that works, again, without will and desire. Now the rest of the Dharma combat could also be seen as this number two of give and take, give and take and following and being in accord with the way. Here though I have to say at times we have to also bring in number three and cut through What's happening? At times we have to do that ourselves. When we find ourselves in a situation where we find ourselves being reactive rather than being present. Cutting through it by bringing back that questioning mind. What is happening? What is this? What are we doing? Life is hitting us over the head with suchness, thusness, with how it is all the time. We are just often too dense to just see it. We'll find all kinds of ways to mark it up, put labels on it, ideally a label we can't see through that hides it from us. So this learning how to see is what we do here. And Uman's answers have to be understood with the gut, not the brain. And these three principles are really, really important. Box and lid, heaven and earth, perfect harmony, the oneness, the accord with the way, actually found later its expression in the koan practice, where the capping phrases, where you as a koan student will be sent out to find a capping phrase that fits to that koan like a lid on a box that goes straight back to uman. But what it also means in our practice that practice, that box and lid, that heaven and earth, is that heaven and earth go together so perfectly, such oneness, in the same way that we, as unique individuals, have to learn to accept our own being as such. Incomparable is the best word. We have to become to approach ourselves as incomparable. We should not compare ourselves to others, not to our own images of what we should be like, what we wish to be like, not to the image of, oh, this person is so much more this than I am. It's a failing proposition. There will be always somebody who is more this than you and there are many who are more or less than you as well. Do not compare. Do not size up anything. Don't compare yourself even to your own expectations. That is the Kangai Kinkon. You have the box. You have the lid. Open up to that. The second one, the Zuiha Chikuro, the waves, following the waves, the ebb and tide, is being in accord with the way. Have a self. Manifest no self. Have a self again. There is time for the tide to come in. There is tide for the tide to go out. And both are phases of the Dharma activity of nature. Only our thinking mind thinks of it two-dimensional. But it is much more than that. But both is there. We have to embrace both. Even in interactions, give and take. At times, be open for questions. Of that giving and taking. Because sometimes it's so much easier to just give something that is more of a dump than a give. The last one, which this leads to, is the Saidan cut through all streams. All streams. Cutting through the streams is cutting our being limited by them because the streams will continue to flow. You will need to think in your lives. You will need to make decisions. You will need to judge. If you can't the difference walking on a path between a rope lying on the ground and the snake, then you have to judge. You have to stay practical. On the other hand, where no judgment is needed, completely abandon it. So, the final thing that I wanted to say here is, we all feel like pieces of shit at times. And that's okay. As long as we don't attach to it, let's make sure that we cut through our attachments to self-images, identities, in order to allow fresh blood to flow through our veins. That's how we as individuals develop, and that's how we can requite the beneficence of this teaching by becoming kind human beings who are not attached or captured by kindness as a concept. A monk asked Umon Bunen, "What is Buddha?" Umon answered, "Kansketzu." This has been a Zen Studies Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org/donate. Thank you for listening.